0: Welcome back to Your Voice First Podcast. This week, I bought my first audio NFT, so I'm going to be answering some questions like why did I buy it? How did I buy it? What benefits did I get by buying an audio NFT? We've got Jeff Bezos' book, Amazon Unbound, talking about the origin story of Amazon Alexa, and Lee Jin, solutions for creator and gig economies. We're going to get started with some tweets. Visa recently bought an NFT. Let's get started this first tweet comes from visa news on twitter at visa news over the last 60 years visa has built a collection of historic commerce artifacts from early paper credit cards to the zip zap machine today as we enter a new era of nft commerce Visa welcomes CryptoPunk number 7610 to our collection. Visa is one of the biggest credit card companies in the planet, and they now own a stake in the OG NFT's CryptoPunks. What does this mean for the rest of the world? This leads us into our next tweet. This next tweet is a retweet with comment. So the original tweet is from Capricar.eth, and the retweet was from Gmoney.eth. The original tweet says, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger who hate crypto, they huddle Berkshire Hathaway, which huddles Visa, which huddles a crypto punk and announced on Twitter. The retweet of this says, Warren Buffett has crypto punk exposure and you don't, Anon? This one made me laugh. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about how much they hate crypto and yet the companies that they own Uh, have investments in companies which are increasing their exposure in crypto. So it's getting harder and harder to say that you don't have any sort of crypto assets because the companies that you're interacting with probably do. Whether that's Tesla, Visa, the Dallas Mavericks, the country of El Salvador, your ETFs or any celebrity that you follow, everyone is getting exposure into the crypto scene. So rather than fight it, I highly recommend you do research and come up with your own strategy so that it's not creeping into your life uh without you being aware like it probably is for warren buffett and charlie munger and the final tweet comes from the art blocks discord um it's a little meme that has a photo of a dad walking into the son's room and it's, the dad has a little caption above his head that says are you winning son and the son is sitting over at his computer and he has a little reply above his head: i got nfts before visa dad Just kind of capitalizing on this is a very early time to be in NFTs. And if you understand them now um, at an early stage and you get some exposure, you don't necessarily need to own a CryptoPunk, but just understanding, coming up with your own hypothesis and executing on that in this space is very important. And the earlier you capitalize on the first mover advantage, the more benefits you will receive down the line, whether that is financial returns or just educational returns that help you understand the space more. And with that, we're now going to roll into the Amazon Alexa section from the book, Amazon Unbound, The Birth of Alexa. amazon unbound jeff bezos and the invention of a global empire was written by brad stone who was also the author of the everything store this book was written in 2021 so it was published earlier this year and one of the things i really like about it is that it addresses amazon post pandemic it's the first book i've read that addresses amazon talking about how it has reacted to the pandemic cycle The first chapter is titled The Uber Product Manager and discusses how Jeff Bezos brought Amazon Alexa from its inception on the whiteboard all the way into a product that sits in over 50% of Americans' households. The book starts off with Jeff Bezos' whiteboard sketch of a voice-activated speaker in late 2010. The photo shows a little box that has a couple different aspects. So you've got a microphone, you've got a Wi-Fi, You've got a speaker, so you've got a microphone that receives audio input. You've got a speaker that lets out audio output. And then you've got a Wi-Fi attachment that allows you to connect to the Wi-Fi. And the last part of the drawing, um, it says invention. Type in Wi-Fi password and then first connect issue question mark. And that was the initial whiteboard design of Amazon Alexa. I'm just gonna kind of read scattered some quotes that I liked from this first chapter, the Uber product manager talking about the birth of Alexa. Here we go. Bezos had peculiar ideas about how customers might interact with these devices. The engineers working on the third version of the Kindle discovered this when they tried to kill a microphone that was planned for the devices. Since no features were slated to actually use it, but the CEO insisted that the microphone remain The answer I got is that Jeff thinks, in the future, we'll talk to our devices," said Sam Bowen, then a Kindle hardware director. It felt a bit more like Star Trek than reality. Designers convinced Bezos to lose the microphone in subsequent versions of the Kindle, but he clung to his belief in the inevitability of conversational computing and the potential of artificial intelligence to make it practical. Amazon's defining product for a new decade a cylindrical speaker that sparked a wave of imitators, challenged norms around privacy, and changed the way people thought about Amazon, not only as an e-commerce giant, but as an inventive technology company that was pushing the very boundaries of computer science. The initiative was originally designed inside Lab 126 as Project D. It would come to be known as the Amazon Exo and by the name of its virtual assistant, Alexa. Messed up there, it's not Amazon Exo, it's Amazon Echo. At the time, Bezos was also excited about Amazon's growing cloud business, asking all of his executives, what are you doing to help AWS? Inspired by the conversations with others about voice computing, he emailed Hart and uh, the device president Ian Freed and senior vice president Steve Kessel on January 4th, 2011, linking the two topics. We should build a $20 device with its brains in the cloud that's completely controlled by your voice. Bezos and, employ- and his employees riffed on the idea over email for a few days, but no further action was taken, and it could have ended there. Then a few weeks later, Hart met with Bezos in a six-floor conference room in Amazon's headquarters, Day One North, to discuss his career opportunities. Eventually, Bezos and Hart crossed off all the items on the list except one, pursuing Bezos' idea for a voice-activated cloud computer. Jeff, I don't have any experience in hardware, and the largest software team I've led is about 40 people, Hart recalled, saying. You'll do fine, Bezos replied. Hart thanked him for the vote of confidence and said, Okay, well, remember that when we screw up along the way. Before they parted, Bezos illustrated his idea for the screenless voice computer on the whiteboard. The first ever depiction of an Alexa device showed the speaker, microphone, and a mute button, and identified the act of configuring the device to a wireless network, since it wouldn't be able to listen to commands right out of the box. As a challenge requiring further thought, Hart snapped a photo of the drawing with his phone. The initial Alexa crew worked with a feverish sense of urgency due to their impatient boss. Unrealistically, Bezos wanted to release the device in six to 12 months. He would have a good reason to hurry. On October 4, 2011, just as the Doppler team was coming together, Apple introduced the Siri virtual assistant on the iPhone 4S. last passion project of co-founder Steve Jobs, who died of cancer the next day. That the resurgent Apple had the same idea of a voice-activated personal assistant was both validating for Hart and his employees and discouraging since Siri was first to market and with initial mixed reviews. The Amazon team tried to reassure themselves that their product was unique since it would be independent from smartphones. Perhaps a more significant differentiator though was that Siri unfortunately could no longer have Jobs' active support while Alexa would have Bezos sponsorship and almost maniacal attention inside of Amazon. The first company Amazon bought, Yap, a 20-person startup based in Charlotte, North Carolina, automatically translated human speech, such as voicemails, into text without relying on a secret network force of human transcribers in low-wage countries. Though much of Yap's technology would be discarded, its engineers would help develop the technology to convert what customers said to the Doppler into a computer-readable format. A few months after the YAP purchase, Greg Hart and his colleagues acquired another piece of the Doppler puzzle. It was the technology antonym of YAP, which converted speech into text. Instead, the Polish startup, Ivana, generated a computer-synthesized speech that resembled a human voice. Ivano was founded in 2001 by Lukasz Osowski, a computer science student at the Gdańsk University of Technology. Osowski had the notion that so-called text-to-speech, or TTS, could read digital text aloud in a natural voice and help the visually impaired in Poland appreciate the written word. With a younger classmate, Michael Kaszkiewicz, He took recordings of an actor's voice and selected fragments of words called diphones and then blended or concatenated them together in different combinations to approximate natural-sounding words and sentences that the actor might never have uttered. At first, Bezos said he wanted dozens of distinct voices to emanate from the device, each associated with a different goal or task, such as listening to music or booking a flight. When that proved impractical, the team considered lists of characteristics they wanted in a single personality, such as trustworthiness, empathy, and warmth, and determined those traits were more commonly associated with a female voice. One discussion centered around the choice of a so-called wake word, the utterance that would arouse Doppler out of a passive mode when it was only listening for its own name, to switch into active listening, where it would send user queries over the internet to Amazon servers and return with a response. The speech science team wanted the wake word to have a distinct combination of uh, phonemes and be at least three syllables so the device wouldn't be triggered by normal conversations. It also needed to be distinctive, like Siri, so that the name could be marketed to the public. Hart and his team presented Bezos with hundreds of flashcards, each with a different name, which he would spread out on a conference room table during the endless deliberations. Doppler execs argued that people would not want to talk to a corporate entity in their homes, and that spawned another ongoing disagreement. Bezos also suggested Alexa, a homage to the ancient library of Alexandria, regarded as the capital of knowledge. This was also the name of an unrelated startup Amazon had acquired in the 1990s, which sold web traffic data and continued to operate independently. After endless debates and lab testing, Alexa and Amazon became the top candidates for the wake word as the device moved into limited trials in the homes of Amazon employees at the start of 2013. Alexa it was clear needed a brain transplant. Amazon's ongoing efforts to make its product smarter would create a dogmatic battle inside the Doppler team and lead to its biggest challenge yet. The first move was to integrate the technology of a third acquisition a Cambridge, England-based artificial intelligence company called Eevee. The startup was founded in 2005 as a question-and-answer tool called True Knowledge by British entrepreneur William tunstall Padot. As a university student, tunstall Padot had created websites like Anagram Genius, which automatically rearranged the letters and words to produce another word or phrase. The site was later used by novelist Dan Brown to create puzzles in The Da Vinci Code. In 2012, inspired by Siri's debut, Tunstall Pado pivoted and introduced the Eevee app for the Apple and Android app stores. Users could ask it questions by tapping or speaking. Instead of searching the web for an answer like Siri or returning a set of links like Google's voice search, Eevee evaluated the question and tried to offer an immediate answer. The app was downloaded over 250,000 times in its first week and almost crashed the company's servers. Apple threatened to kick it off the iOS store for appearing confusingly similar to Siri, then related when fans objected. Oh, they then relented when fans objected. Thanks to all this attention, Eevee had at least two acquisition offers and a prospective investment from venture capitalists when Amazon won out in late 2012 with a rumored $26 million deal. Integrating Eevee's technology helped Alexa respond to factual queries such as requests to name the planets in the solar system and it gave the impression that Alexa was smart. But was it? Proponents of another method of natural learning understanding called deep learning believed that Eevee's knowledge graphs wouldn't give Alexa the kind of authentic intelligence that would satisfy Bezos' dreams of a versatile assistant that could talk to users and answer any question. In the deep learning model, machines were fed large amounts of data about how people converse and what responses proved satisfying, and then were programmed to train themselves to predict the best answers. The chief proponent of this approach was an Indian-born engineer named Rohit Prasad. He was a critical hire, said engineering director John Thimpson. Much of the success of the project is due to the team he assembled and the research they did on far-field speech recognition. But Evie's Toonstall paddo argued that knowledge graphs were the more practical solution and mistrusted the deep learning approach. He felt it was error-prone and would require an endless diet of training data to properly mold. Alexa's learning models. The thing about machine learning scientists is that they never admit defeat because all of their problems can be solved with more data, he explained. That response might carry a tinge of regret with it, because to the Uber product manager, Bezos himself, there was no question about which way time's arrow was pointed, toward machine learning in deep neural networks. With its vast and sophisticated AWS data centers, Amazon was also in a unique position to be able to harness a large number of high-powered computer processors to train its speech models, exploiting its advantage in the cloud in a way very few of its competitors could. Defeated, Tunstall Padot ended up leaving Amazon in 2016. Even though the deep learning approach won out, Prasad and his allies still had to solve the paradox that confronts all companies developing AI. They don't want to launch a system that is dumb. Customers won't use it and so won't generate enough data to improve the service. But companies need that data to train the system to make it smarter. Internally, the program was called Ampt. Amazon contracted with its Australian data collection firm, Appen, and went on the road with Alexa, in disguise. Appen rented homes and apartments, initially in Boston, and then Amazon littered several rooms with all kinds of decoy devices. Pedestal microphones, Xbox gaming consoles, televisions, and tablets. There were also some 20 Alexa devices planted around the rooms at different heights, each shrouded in an acoustic fabric that hid them from view but allowed sound to pass through. Appen then contracted with a temp agency and a stream of contract workers filtered through the properties, 8 hours a day, 6 days a week, reading scripts from an iPad with canned lines and open-ended requests like, ask to play your favorite tune, and ask anything you'd like an assistant to do. The introduction of the Amazon Echo on November 6, 2014 was modeled by the failure of the Fire Phone only months before it. There was no press conference or visionary speech by Bezos. He was seemingly done forever with his half-hearted impression of the late Steve Jobs, who had unveiled new products with such verve. Instead, Bezos appeared more comfortable with a new, understated approach. The team announced the Echo with a press release and two-minute explanatory video on YouTube that showed a family cheerfully talking to Alexa. Amazon execs did not tout the new device as a fully conversational computer, but carefully highlighted several domains where they were confident it was useful, such as delivering the news, weather, setting timers, creating shopping lists, and playing music. Then they asked customers to join a waiting list to buy an Echo and reviewed the list carefully, avoiding uh, considering factors like whether appliance, applicants were users of Amazon Music and owned a Kindle. Recognizing that it was an untested market, they also ordered an initial batch of only 80,000 devices, compared to a preliminary order of more than 300,000 Firephones, and distributed them gradually over the next few months. Over the next few weeks, 109,000 customers registered for the waiting list to receive an echo. Along with some natural skepticism, positive reviews rolled in with quotes like, I just spoke to the future and it listened, and It's the most innovative device Amazon's made in years. Employees emailed Alexa executives Tony Reed and Greg Hart, pleading for devices for family members and friends. After the Echo shipped, the team could see when the devices were turned on and that people were actually using them. Bezos' intuition had been right. There was something vaguely magical in summoning a computer in your home without touching the glass of a smartphone. Something valuable in having a responsive speaker that would play music respond to practical requests like how many cups are there in a court and even banter with playful ones alexa are you married over the next few months amazon would roll out the alexa skills kit which allowed other companies to build voice enabled apps for the echo and alexa voice service which let the makers of products like light bulbs and alarm clocks integrate alexa into their own devices bezos also told greg hart that the team needed to release new features with a weekly cadence and that since there was no way to signal the updates, Amazon should email customers every week to alert them of the new features their devices offered. Bezos' wish list became the product plan. He wanted Alexa to be everywhere, doing everything all at once. Services that had originally been pushed to the wayside in the scramble to launch, like shopping on Alexa, now became urgent priorities. But there were drawbacks to the frenetic speed and growth For years, the Alexa smartphone app looked like something a design student had come up with during a late night blender. A late night bender, not blender. Setting up an echo or networking echoes throughout the home was more complicated than it needed to be. It was also difficult and confusing for users to phrase commands in the right way to trigger third-party skills and specialized features. The periodic problems with Alexa underscored how far it had come and how far it still had to go. By 2019, Amazon had sold more than 100 million Echo devices. In the span of a decade, a product spawned by Bezos' love of science fiction and infatuation with invention had become a universally recognized product whose miscues and challenges to conventional notions of privacy were widely covered by the media. Yet Alexis still wasn't conversational in the way Bezos and Rohit Prasad had originally hoped. And though it had spawned a small cottage industry of startups and other companies pinning their hopes on voice-enabled services and devices not many people used Alexa's third-party skills or add-ons and developers still weren't seeing much revenue compared to the way they did on the app stores of apple and google that is the uber product manager from the book amazon unbound two things that really jump out to me are both related to the blockchain One is talking about the number of separate developers in the ecosystem that had invested in Alexa. It says, and though it had spawned a small cottage industry of startups and other companies pinning their hopes on voice-enabled services and devices, companies such as the company I've started, Voice First, we pin our hopes on the success of Amazon and on Alexa, but our success is greatly decoupled from it. Um, unlike a company like Uniswap, where I could go out and I can buy the token and I can own a share of that platform, I can't do that with Amazon Alexa. And although I built a company on top of Amazon Alexa, if I stop, I don't own a piece of that company's success anymore, its failures, or have any sort of voice in how it grows. The centralized world, although it did bring us this awesome computing software of Amazon Alexa, it hasn't done a good job of incentivizing the people in the community and aligning our interests together. The success of Alexa is greatly decoupled from my success as a business owner. And my success as a business owner um, might fuel Alexa by the products that I build, but Amazon's success is decoupled from that. In the Web3 world, using blockchain technology, we can greater incentivize and align uh, the incentives of both the centralized provider as well as the community that surrounds it. The other part that stood out to me in this chapter was the line services that had originally pushed to the wayside in the scramble to launch, like shopping on Alexa, now became urgent priorities. Alexa is not founded on top of money. One, it's not a protocol. It is an interface to interact with Web 2 technologies, and some would argue some Web 3 technologies can be built underneath Alexa. But it's not a protocol, and it wasn't built with money as the core. With blockchain, money is the fundamental core. When I build a decentralized application on top of Ethereum, I can send and receive money in the base protocol using Wei. sending, making a function payable, um, the transaction costs are all known by the end user. but. Amazon didn't integrate shopping or monetary features until much later after the device was initially released. This is a fundamental difference between some centralized technologies and technologies that are built on top of Web3 infrastructure. All that being said, I've really enjoyed reading this book so far. I love that this book, Amazon Unbound, started right out the gate talking about Amazon Alexa. It really highlights how fundamentally important in paradigm changing of a technology voice technology is and like i've been investing in voice technology for the past getting close to 10 years and every day it seems like there's new releases the technology gets smarter it gets more useful the community feels more empowered i love to see how this technology grows and it's good to see that this book amazon unbound saw that as well and saw that it was so powerful that it needed to include it an entire chapter at the start of the book. Up next, we're going to be talking about audio NFTs. I just bought my first audio NFT, and uh, let's talk about it. I bought my first audio NFT. We're going to start off talking about why, then how, then what. The why? Um, NFTs have been a really booming part of the ethereum ecosystem recently and not just on ethereum on any sort of uh, blockchain layer one that has nfts enabled and while nfts are big most of them are focused on jpegs pngs the visual side my background is in audio voice first technology and i think the audio side of nfts has been underrepresented And I think that there is a lot of opportunity for musicians to uh, build their brand and earn their living and be a part of the creator economy where they are able to make a living off of their art using audio NFTs. We're starting to see this with Kings of Leon releasing their NFT, Tory Lane's who sold 1 million copies of his NFT, and multiple other musicians, producers, Um, Composers releasing NFTs every day. Audio NFTs are a new field that has not experienced a big boom yet. And as a result, I'm here wanting to explore, to learn more, to understand what my place is. Although I have published quite a few NFTs, none of them have any audio component. They're all just generative art that I've made using code and algorithms to produce visual art. And I've listed those on OpenSea and other marketplaces but I haven't done anything with audio yet on the creation side. So buying an audio NFT was my first time really getting into the audio NFT sphere. So how did I do it? I purchased my audio NFT off of men's songs. I went on to men's songs. Um, I looked at multiple different musicians and artists that are on the platform. Um, and then I scrolled and found, uh, Different artists, I was looking at it and saying, okay, who are the top sellers? Who are the musicians that are out there selling the most NFTs? Because those are where collectors and fans are gravitating towards to find value. And then I looked at the visual aspect because each of these audio NFTs has a visual component, whether that is a PNG album art or JPEG, or what I ended up buying was actually a GIF. So an animation of the album art and then price it was the first one i bought and for me i wanted i prefer to have lots of smaller investments rather than one big investment so for me i bought uh, i bought an nft that i think was valued around 0.005 eth Um, and so yeah what i did is i went on to men's songs i found the artist dream eater and I liked the gift that he had as his album art, the spinning logo of his own song. And I listened to a few of his tracks, found one that I liked, and then bought it. Opened up MetaMask, approved the transaction, and then the NFT was sent to my wallet. I was able to view it. I opened up Polygon Scan because I bought it on the Polygon network so that there were super low transaction fees for me to get my NFT. I saw the transaction on Polygon Scan. I went over to OpenSea, I opened up OpenSea and confirmed that I saw the NFT inside of my wallet. I did not list it for sale, and my intention is to never sell any NFT I buy from a musician. My goal is to hold on to these NFTs forever. If I sell any NFTs, they're NFTs that I have created that I want to create for the community with the intention of selling. I don't intend to be in the NFT space to speculate on others' pieces. I want to own others pieces to reap the benefits of their NFTs and the rights that I get by owning those NFTs. I don't want to speculate and resell them for my own financial gain. My main goal is to buy these so that I can be a part of the artist's journey as they are evolving and growing. So then what did I buy? Again, uh, I bought an NFT from Dream Eater. Let me pull up Mint Songs so that I can confirm what it was I bought. And real quick, if you haven't heard of Mint Songs, you can just go to mintsongs.com. Right now, they're in closed beta, but if you reach out to them on Discord or um, on Twitter, they will add you and give you a key so you can join their closed beta. And open beta, I think, is coming next week. So I bought the song Ink by Dream Eater, and uh, I bought edition number one of 50, so I'm the first person to buy um, the edition. And these editions are all exactly the same which i have some thoughts about i think that there is a lot of value in dropping a collection of 50 different nfts but if all 50 of those nfts are exactly the same it kind of defeats the purpose of them being non-fungible like the the whole concept of a non-fungible token is the fact that it is unique it's not fungible and when someone mints 50 editions of the same nft it kind of for me defeats the purpose but I couldn't find anybody that had an affordable nft that was a one of one so i guess that kind of puts my own investing and buying strategy into question of if i'm looking and find value in one of ones don't go and buy editions of 50 but instead pay more so that you can have that one of one unique nft here's a little 15 second clip of the nft that i own I'm just going to add it because I own it, so I'm going to add it into the episode right here. Have you taken LSD? About four times. Where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything, it's silly to say that. Do you believe that this was a matter which you should have kept private? Well, the thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper, and the decision was whether to tell a lie or to, uh the truth, you know? That was a 30-second clip of the NFT I bought from Dream Eater called Inc. Up next, we're going to be talking about an article released on August 10th from Lee Jin. The creator economy is in crisis now. Let's fix it. A couple years ago, Legion promised the Passion Economy in the Future of Work, which laid out a vision for online work that was informed by and a reaction to the challenges of the gig economy. While the gig economy represented a major development in the evolution of online enabled work, it also entitled risks that were disproportionately borne by workers, such as reduction of labor, income instability, lack of rights, and lack of autonomy she's now written this article the creator economy is in crisis now let's fix it and uh, we're going to read through the section that talks about the new shape of capital parallel problems in the gig and creator economies as well as how do we build a healthier creator economy Um, just going through the bullet levels at the top inside of the, the the parallel problems in the gig and creator economies we have oversupply and competition between creators, exploitation of creator labor, insecurity and volatility, and intermediation and taxation. And then in the steps of how do we build a healthier creator economy, we've got ownership and portability, credibly neutral creator mechanisms, creator-friendly business models, and creator interdependence and solidarity. Let's start by reading The New Shape of Capital. In a world where work is increasingly mediated by platforms, the relationship between workers and capital owners evolves. Historically, capital ownership revolved around physical capital, such as manufacturing equipment, raw materials, and building. During the Industrial Revolution, workers migrated en masse to cities to seek work at various centers of production with the proportion of the population living in cities, jumping from 17 to 72% between 1801 to 1891 in England and Wales. Since the late 20th century, capital has shifted and abstracted from production to finance with financial services, accounting for an increasing share of national income relative to other non-financial sectors. Today, With the shift to platform mediated work, capital is evolving once more to ownership of data that enables productivity. Gig economy's platforms lock-in isn't predicated on controlling physical capital or manufacturing equipment. Instead, their capital is data that they gather and control locations of every network participant, the records of all events and interactions, reputation and feedback scores, and market clearing prices, all of which strengthens their network effect. Similarly, the creator economy is marked by the rise of a small number of firms that have accumulated capital and effectively control the means of production and distribution. While online platforms have unlocked the traditional gatekeepers of the creative world, they also serve as the access choke points of a new type of capital. The domain centralized creators uh, platforms own the data, the the dominant centralized creator platforms own the data, social graphs, and end-user relationships all of which creators need in order to access audiences and income. Furthermore, in the majority of cases, this type of capital cannot be easily ported over to external creator-owned properties. In this way, creator labor is controlled and commoditized by platforms. Now we're going to get into the parallel problems in the gig and creator economies. Again, those are oversupply and competition between creators, exploitation of creator labor, insecurity and volatility, and intermediation and taxation. Against the backdrop of creator platforms controlling the means of production, various risks are arising. Oversupply and competition between creators. As in the gig economy, the creator economy is marked by the incentivization of oversupply. There's a multitude of creators willing to create content and algorithmic feeds serve up a steady stream of alternatives. As a creator, one's content is commoditized and substitutable with rival offerings. When there is one monolithic feed built with an algorithm that uses a preferential attachment model, a small set of creators rise to the top, and all creators compete with each other to capture the attention of audiences. The result is a zero-sum competition between creators that results in oversupply and devaluation of content. Though creators are trying to implement the playbook of leveraging social media platforms to build an audience before porting them elsewhere, the movement of one's audience is a non-trivial process that platforms are resistant to facilitating. A unique element that impedes organization and activism among creators is the intrinsic motivation behind online creative work. Creating content often has the connotation of being a hobby or a labor of love, which causes many new aspiring creators to join platforms and start creating content for free without any expectation of compensation, benefits, or protections. This makes creative labor uniquely at risk for being devalued and exploited. Number two, exploitation of creator labor. While unpaid internships are still legal in many cases in the US, they're increasingly considered exploitative. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 stipulates that any employee for a for-profit company must be paid for their work. In contrast, creators are effectively large-scale, unpaid workforces, uploading massive amounts of content that platforms have converted into billions of dollars of revenue and trillions of dollars of equity value. Sometimes creators receive a share of the revenue that platforms earn from their content but lack enfranchisement in how pay is determined. Or how monetization rules and thresholds are set this is reminiscent of the compensation practices in the gig economy ride sharing and platform uh, delivery platforms shift their costs and risks into drivers who go unpaid when there is no rides or orders resulting in effective earnings that are below minimum wage number three insecurity and volatility creator label creator labor entails the same job and income insecurity as gig work In the gig work world clients can end contracts at any time and providers can be swapped out easily the same can be said for creators if users are not satisfied with the content or offering another creator is just a swipe away underscoring this job insecurity is a black box algorithm that drives most social media discovery feeds product design can change at a moment's notice to favor different types of content Diverting potential prospective followers elsewhere. This insecurity and volatility is a direct contributor to creator burnout. In a New York Times article called Creator Burnout, a TikTok creator in Toronto says, It almost feels like I'm getting a taste of celebrity, but it n- it's never consistent. And as soon as you get it, it's gone and you're constantly trying to get it back. Last summer, creator's job insecurity came into focus during the shutdown of Mixer and later the threatened band of TikTok. Creators exhorted followers to follow their other social media accounts, and third-party products arose to let creators download a copy of their own content or follower lists. Deplatforming, whether by a platform or by the state, means that creators can easily lose access to their audiences and past creations. In the gig economy, the parallel occurs when platforms deactivate worker accounts for a variety of reasons, and workers lose their ability to earn income with no recourse for reaching previous customers. Lastly, we have intermediation and taxation. Because creator platforms own, often own the relationship between creators and fans, they're also able to intermediate the economic relationship, which uh, with compensation determined by the platform. Just as gig workers are unable to negotiate their pay with platforms, creators are similarly price takers, while platforms deciding revenue, share rates, monetization criteria, creator fund payouts, and other elements that drive creator income. Unilateral and often opaque monetization policies have resulted in widespread creator mistrust. A Wired article about the TikTok creator fund noted, three creators who spoke with Wired say they noticed their views drop after they joined the fund, and they wondered whether TikTok was intentionally limiting their reach to cap how much they could earn. Two of them have since opted out of the program entirely. There can also be intermediation by other creators. Because of the role that follower graphs and reputation play in surfacing content, influence and monetization flow to those who already have large audiences. The associated risks include lack of attribution to smaller creators for trends or without uh, withholding of earnings by intermediaries purporting to represent creators. Next, how do we build a healthier creator economy? In the face of increasingly commoditized creator labor, a few principles should be upheld to realize the vision of a better creator economy. Those principles are 1. Ownership and portability, 2. Credibly neutral creator mechanisms, 3. Creator-friendly business models, and 4. Creator interdependence and solidarity. Let's get started with number 1. Ownership and portability. Ownership comes in different forms. Creators are increasingly prioritizing owning a neutral channel of communication with their audiences via email lists, RSS feed subscribers, etc., and owning the direct monetization relationship with end users, such as a Stripe account. Creators are also setting up their own websites, potentially self-hosted with their own domains, as a way to build more direct fan relationships. Creator and user ownership of data, relationships, content, identities, and interactions would weaken platform lock-in and entail a shift in power from platforms to the participants, enabling them to operate outside of a handful of platforms. But we can go even further in enabling creators and users to control their own destiny. Software itself can become community-owned and operated. In crypto networks, that can entail a distribution of tokens that confers governance rights. While in Web2 platforms, user ownership can take the form of engaging the community as investors and advisors, potentially enabled through tools like Fairment, Republic, Cabal, and Stocks. For companies, engaging creators as shareholders can give creators more incentive to contribute to a company that they co-own, offers opportunity for creators to shape decisions that help the business succeed, and creates incentive alignment between the platform and its participants. On content itself, while most Web2 platforms don't claim ownership of users' content, they grant the platform the right to use, distribute, and modify their work. Instagram's Terms of Use states, You hereby grant us a non-exclusive, royalty-free, transferable, sub-licensable, worldwide license to host, use, distribute, modify, run, copy, publicly perform, or display, translate, or create derivative works of your content. In other words, Users are essentially giving control to the platform as to how, where, when, and under what circumstances the image can be reused. A loss of ownership and control that leads to their content being devalued and commoditized. Fred Wilson has written about ownership on his own blog. It's important to me that I control the platform that I publish on. I use the open source WordPress software for my content management system and run that on a hosted server. I use my own domain, abc.com, to locate my writings on the internet. That has served me well. No matter how horrible I become, nobody is going to take me down. But we can go even further down this path of controlling our destiny. We can decentralize the entire thing. The content management system, the storage of the content, and the domain name system. Principle number two, credibly neutral creator mechanisms. Vitalik Buterin wrote about the importance of building mechanisms that are credibly neutral, in which he described a mechanism is credibly neutral if just by looking at the mechanism's design, it is easy to see that the mechanism does not discriminate for or against any specific people. The four elements of a credibly neutral, uh, of credible neutrality are: one, don't write specific people or specific outcomes into the mechanism; two open source and publicly viable, verifiable execution. Three, keep it simple. Four, don't change it too often. Another way to think about credible credible neutrality is the idea of a veil of ignorance. In this thought experiment, citizens making choices about their society are asked to make them from behind a veil of ignorance without greater knowledge of their gender, race, abilities, tastes, wealth, or position in society. Correspondingly, applying the veil of ignorance to creator platforms allows us to test policies, monetization mechanisms, funds, and product mechanics for fairness and impartiality. For instance, we would design the TikTok creator fund as is. If we were situated behind the veil of ignorance with no knowledge of which particular creator, we would be on the platform. Let me read that again. For instance, would we design the creator fund for TikTok as is? If we were situated behind the veil of ignorance with no knowledge of which particular creator we would be on the platform it's easy to see how today's web 2 platform lacks neut- credible neutrality and would fail veil of ignorance reasoning algorithms that decide which content gets shown aren't publicly verifiable and removal of certain creators or contents happens arbitrarily facebook's oversight board is an imperfect attempt at credible neutrality comprised of 20 independent members that Facebook selected, who review decisions about content moderations. Recently, with the ban of Donald Trump, the board argued that indefinite suspension was an arbitrary punishment that was not supported by the company's stated policies. It is not permissible for Facebook to keep a user off the platform for an undefined period, with no criteria for when or whether the account will be restored. It went on to say, and applying a vague standardless penalty, And then referring this case to the board to resolve, Facebook seeks to avoid its responsibilities. More broadly, in response to the limited powers and questionable neutrality of the Facebook Oversight Board, an ad hoc group of activists, researchers, and academics convened a real Facebook Oversight Board to push for more accountability. In contrast, the Mirror dollar sign right race is a weekly open voting process in which the existing users of Mirror a community-owned and operated publishing platform, decide on which new members to induct. The team wrote, are we, the mirror team, the sole gatekeepers of the platform? Is that at all in line with our values? Do we even have time for that? The answer is no, no, and no. Though prospective members may not like the results, the process is open, neutral, and publicly verifiable. Principle number three, creator-friendly business models. Business models to define incentives, and incentives drive the content that users create. Offering more direct monetization models where users pay creators can encourage creators to align their content with that end user's value, versus creating content that maximizes watch time or virality. Other monetization models can foster a creator middle class, for instance, allowing creators to capitalize on superfans to capture more of the area underneath their demand curve or to earn more passive income example, create now, earn later, thus reducing the active effort needed to maintain financial success and mitigating creator burnout. In addition, platforms should set take rates that are minimally extractive. Bill Gurley outlines the strategy behind platform take rates in his post. In order for your platform to be definitive place to transact, you want industry-leading pricing, which is impossible if, you ra- if your rake is the de facto causing of excessive pricing he also outlines an example of priceline group enabling participants to build up their rate take for better placement this is in contrast to most creator platforms today which set take rates unilaterally and sometimes regressively more successful creators pay less on twitch as outlined above turning stakeholders into shareholders as in creator and user-owned platforms Can better align the interests of platforms with creators. Ownership can confer both economic and governance rights, meaning that creators and users decide on product strategy, leadership, and what to do with profits. Finally, number four, creator interdependence and solidarity. Today's creator economy, as it exists on centralized social platforms, pits creators in competition with each other in a constant battle for fleeting attention. Going forward, My hope is that we can build platforms and mechanisms that incentivize mutual support between creators, where one creator's success does not come at the expense of another's. Creator DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, are a way to turn a group of people with a shared mission, example, creating media about a certain topic, into a decentralized army with a treasury and governance tools that harness members' collective intelligence. Today, we're seeing lots of experimentation in Creator DAOs. Members vote on creative projects, co-create content, have all revenue flow to a treasury, and share in ownership. Uh, Examples include Camps Electra or Dirt. Beyond creator DAOs, recent investments, recent instances of large groups of people pooling together capital in order to buy NFT artwork, example is via party bid, hints at how people can organize to reach a collective goal. These organizations hold glimpses of what this more cooperative future may look like, and I expect best practices to emerge for how creators can leverage DAOs. Perhaps one element of these DAOs could be universal creative income funded by the community treasury in order to broaden access for emerging diverse creators. In contrast to today's creator funds offered by social media platforms, the eligibility for funding could be based on independent independently verifiable data, since all user metrics are on-chain. Note that it's likely infeasible for existing platforms to adopt the principles above, as doing so would erode their current business models and weaken their network effects. Innovator's dilemma suggests that new entrants are more likely going to be the ones building with these creator-friendly principles in mind, with new disruptive business models that align with creators' interests. Lee Jin is one of my favorite thinkers on the creator economy. She is constantly coming out with very interesting information to help creators earn a living from their works. And she's not just exploring the creator economy, but she's also working on blockchain. She has a background with A16Z. Um, She runs a podcast that I really enjoy called Means of Creation that I highly recommend uh, for anybody that is wanting to learn more about the creator economy or how it relates to blockchain that's it for today Um, if you have any questions again you can reach out on any social media platform this is sweets signing off